Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we can be together today. And we are continuing our lesson from Genesis chapter 18, where we find Abraham and God negotiating over the fate of Sodom. But before we begin the lesson, let's bow our heads for prayer. I want us to pray together the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians from Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. The Jewish people have a Yiddish word called chutzpah, which chutzpah is extreme self-confidence or even audacity in asking or requesting from others. We might say, you know, to have the nerve or to have the gall to do something. Let me begin to illustrate this with a joke. There was a little old Jewish lady who sold pretzels on the street corner for 25 cents. Every day, a young man leaves his office building at lunchtime, and as he passes the pretzel stand, he leaves her a quarter, but he never takes a pretzel. They never exchange a word. This goes on for more than three years. One day, as the young man passes the old lady's stand and leaves his quarter, as he usually does, the pretzel lady finally speaks to him. Sir, I appreciate your business. You are a good customer. But I have to tell you, the pretzel price has gone up to 35 cents. Now, that's what we might call chutzpah. In today's lesson, we see Abraham showing a lot of this quality. Abraham daring to speak up to God. We might say Abraham finding the nerve or having the gall to ask God to change his mind. In this section of Scripture, we see Abraham and God in dialogue. And we get the idea that they are feeling each other out. They're taking the measure of the other. They've entered into a covenant previous to this. And this covenant is God's entire plan of salvation for mankind. It's crucial that Abraham and God know who they're dealing with. So, in this episode, we look at what God finds out about Abraham what does Abraham find out about God? And it leaves us with several important applications. What does God look for in us? What does he desire to see in us? What can we count on in God? You know, what can we depend upon God for? Now, this incident began with Abraham sitting in his tent. It's the hottest part of the day. And he's more or less just sitting there trying to keep cool. The scripture says the Lord appears to him. Specifically, it says Abraham sees three men approaching. And it's left kind of vague. Are one of these three men the Lord himself? Is the Lord there in addition to these three men? Are the three men humans? Are they divine messengers? Are they angels? We aren't told specifics. But we are told what we need to understand. The Lord is present there in person, and Abraham knows that he's dealing with the Lord. 
After the men eat with Abraham, the Lord confirms about this time next year, he will return, Sarah will give birth to a son. Now, God has promised this to Abraham before. Abraham has spent many years waiting for God to fulfill this promise. But now, God gives Abraham a definite timetable. He says, within a year. Now, you can imagine what this news means to Abraham. After all this time, all of the promises, all of the waiting that he's been doing, it's coming to an end. Abraham will finally have the son that God promised. Then the men get up to leave, and they head toward Sodom, and Abraham walks with them on their way. And this is where our lesson for today begins. Our text says, The Lord asks, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now, we don't know exactly who he's speaking to. Maybe he's speaking to the men with him. We assume that Abraham can hear what is being said, but it doesn't sound as if he's speaking directly to Abraham. It's more that God is allowing Abraham to listen in on the conversation, that God is making Abraham privy to his very thoughts. Now, why, the Scripture says, should I reveal this to Abraham? Why would God hide it from Abraham? Well, if he is going to destroy Sodom, Lot and his family are in Sodom. The destruction of Sodom would be a death sentence for Lot. And so this has to be devastating news to Abraham. Lot meant a lot to Abraham, even if they had split up by this time. When Abraham is first called out of Ur, Scripture makes a point to tell us that Lot came with him and that Lot's father had passed away. The implication seems to be that Abraham assumes the care, the responsibility for Lot, almost as if Abraham sees Lot as an heir, as a son. And now, the news that Lot and everyone else in Sodom would be destroyed. Think of the emotional whiplash here. Abraham had just been given this amazing promise that within one year he would have his long-awaited son. But now he's told, in just a day or so, he's going to lose Lot. So we could see why it might be difficult to tell Abraham this. But we also ask ourselves, why would God tell this to Abraham? And Scripture makes the point that God tells this because of the covenant that he has established between himself and Abraham. In light of what this covenant will mean, not just for Abraham, not even just for the Jewish people, but for eventually all the nations of the world. The relationship then between Abraham and God when they make this covenant, the relationship is crucial. First, Abraham or God tells Abraham because Abraham is God's friend. And this is what friends do. They share their hearts. They share intents with each other. In John 15, 15, Jesus tells his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. If God is going to be Abraham's friend, if Abraham is going to be God's friend, there needs to be an openness between them. This really is amazing when you stop and think of it. 
that we have a God who allows us to see into His mind, a God who reveals His very thoughts to us, a God who seeks out an intimacy with us, who wants us to know Him. Secondly, Abraham or God is revealing this to Abraham because by revealing His plans for Sodom, God is allowing Abraham the opportunity to act. God is giving Abraham the chance to put his faith and belief into action. Eugene Peterson, in his introduction to the book of Ephesians, writes, What we know about God and what we do for God have a way of getting broken apart in our lives. In our modern culture, we have split apart what it means to be a Christian into two distinct spheres, what we believe and what we do. And usually we place far more importance on what we believe as Christians rather than what we actually do as Christians. We reduce the Christian life to making a decision for Christ, and we focus all of our efforts on this. Our Christian life becomes a matter of believing the right things. In reality, however, beliefs cannot be separated from actions. Our actions show what we truly believe. Our actions shape what we believe. We develop right thinking, right beliefs, only through obedience to God. The Greek philosopher Socrates, who wasn't a Christian, but I believe he was onto something here, he thought it ludicrous that a man might understand justice while at the same time living an unjust life. It was only when a person chose to behave justly that he could form any ideas of what a wholly just existence meant. And it's true for us. It's only when we act in faithful obedience to Christ that we can truly understand what it means to have faith in Christ. Abraham cannot truly believe God to be merciful until he acts to invoke God's mercy on behalf of these in Sodom. God is also sharing with Abraham in order to have a dialogue with him. In our modern world, we've lost the ability to actually have a dialogue with each other. We argue with each other. We debate with each other. We attempt to persuade. But we've lost the understanding that there's a great power in true dialogue. Karen Armstrong writes, In his conversations, Socrates sought not merely to inform, but to form the minds of his interlocutors, producing within them a profound psychological change. When we enter dialogue with God, it's not just a matter of sharing information. God is using conversation, dialogue, to shape, to change us. And this is why we often miss the whole point of prayer. Richard Foster writes, To pray is to change. God uses prayer to change us. And God is using this dialogue to shape Abraham, to reveal depths to Abraham that he himself may not have even known existed. Abraham begins by making a huge ask of God. Abraham requests that God spare multiple thousands of evil people if he could find 50 righteous. But then Abraham actually has the nerve to keep going to 45 and then 40 and 30 and so on. So for many reasons, 
It's important that God share with Abraham what he's going to do here and allow Abraham to respond. So the Lord speaks to Abraham. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great that I will go down and see if it is as bad as what's reached me. If not, I will know. God doesn't specifically state that he's going to destroy Sodom. But from Abraham's response, Abraham seems to clearly understand that this will be the result. Why does God need to go down? God knows everything. Surely he doesn't need to actually take a report. But I think God is saying this for Abraham's sake. He wants Abraham to see how he works. As teachers, we often explain our thinking aloud. As we work through a math problem, for example, we share the questions that we're asking ourselves with our students. We want the students to see the thought processes we use to arrive at our answer. And God seems to be doing something similar here. He's letting Abraham know how his thinking works. God is revealing how he operates in regards to judgment because this is going to be important if Abraham is going to carry out the covenant. Now, the language of to go down conveys the idea of personal intervention, of God becoming personally involved. This same language is used in Genesis chapter 11 when the Lord comes down to see the Tower of Babel. God announces, let us go down and confuse their language. And then in Exodus 3, God says, So I have come down to rescue them, when he talks about bringing the Israelites out of slavery. So the idea of going down carries with it that God is going to become personally involved. So we can see here, God is aware of evil and wickedness. It says here, the outcry has reached his ears. The Hebrew word for outcry is used in Scripture to describe the cries of the oppressed, the cries of those who are brutalized. It's used to describe the cry of the oppressed widow or orphan. Exodus 22, Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. So, Sodom and Gomorrah have been the cause of a lot of suffering. They've left many victims in their wake. God is not ignorant of this. God is not disinterested. We have to understand, when God refrains from acting, it's not out of unconcern. It's not because he can't be bothered. Eventually, God will act. God does hear the cries of the oppressed. Now, we also see that when God judges, God judges truthfully. He judges from reality. It's a judgment based on truth. It's not on a whim. It's God is never capricious. For us, this is good news. We can know exactly where we stand with God. We can know what God requires of us. Now, the men who are with the Lord go on toward Sodom, and Abraham remains standing before the Lord. You can imagine what is going on through his mind. How is he reacting to this news? that Sodom and Lot will be destroyed. Can you imagine what he's thinking? Abraham has to be devastated here. He's rescued Lot from his human enemies, 
We read just a few chapters earlier how Lot had been taken captive by kings who had had conquered Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham had to raise his own fighting force and go after Lot to rescue him. So Abraham had rescued Lot from human enemies. But now it's God who is going to judge. How can he rescue Lot from God? Abraham then approaches God and begins a very candid dialogue. Now think of what it takes for Abraham to approach God. It really does take chutzpah on Abraham's part. Anyone who approaches God casually, easily, they probably do not have a good understanding of God's holiness. In Scripture, whenever God appeared, it was a frightening experience. And so Abraham knew the risk he was taking in approaching God. Later in the dialogue, Abraham says, Now that I have been so bold as to speak, even though I am nothing but dust and ashes. But Abraham had confidence in the God that he was approaching. Abraham had a relationship. This was his friend, and he felt close enough to God to speak his mind. It brings the question to us, are we often afraid to bring our request to God, to ask God for really big things? When you stop and think about it, is there anything that's too much to ask of God? Can we actually show too much chutzpah, too much boldness? Can we ask God for too much? I don't really think it's possible to ask God for too much. Abraham here shows boldness. In fact, he actually rebukes God. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing. And then he repeats this, far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? As Ben Patterson writes, Abraham responds pugnaciously. Abraham just comes right out with it. He tells God this isn't right. We see Abraham really as out of his head here. He seems to be overwhelmed by the news of this coming destruction. And so he responds honestly. And God does not strike him dead for his impertinence. God allows, God encourages Abraham to be honest with him. A dialogue with God has to begin with honesty. We don't have to hide our true feelings. God takes into account the fact that we are human. As the psalmist tells us in Psalm 104, For he, that is God, knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust. Abraham makes an argument here. It's not right. It's not fitting for a righteous God to slay the righteous along with the wicked, for a righteous God to treat righteous and wicked alike. It's not fair. So as we look at this, we have to ask ourselves, is this argument valid? Is it not right for God to treat the righteous and the wicked alike? Now notice, God never responds to this argument from Abraham. He doesn't tell Abraham, yes, you're right, or no, you're wrong. God ignores the argument. He could have said several things. God could have said, well, I don't treat righteous and wicked alike because there are actually no none who are righteous. There's nobody who actually is not deserving of punishment. God could have said, you are a man, a mere mortal. You're in no position to judge me on what's right and fair. 
He could have answered Abraham as he did Job. Who are you to question me? He tells Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? But God doesn't. God doesn't uh, tell Abraham he's wrong. He doesn't tell Abraham he's right. He simply listens to what Abraham has to say. And Abraham then begins to bargain with God. He asks, what if 50 righteous people could be found in the city? Would you sweep away 50 righteous people along with the wicked? Would you not spare the city for the sake of those 50? Now, we, we have to stop and think, why does Abraham begin with 50? Does he have a specific reason? Now, estimates are that the people involved here in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the neighboring area, may be as many as 500,000 people. So 50 is a very small percentage of the total. You know, does Abraham begin with 50 because he thinks, surely there must be 50 righteous people in a city of that size? Maybe Abraham is thinking of the influence of the righteous, of thinking, well, if there's a core group of 50 righteous, maybe that's a group that's big enough to influence the wicked, to, to bring about redemption on their part. Maybe Abraham's thinking if there are 50 righteous people, there's still hope there. The situation hasn't gone beyond redemption. We don't really know why Abraham begins with 50, but he does. Now, Abraham also doesn't ask God to spare the righteous by delivering them, by pulling out the righteous and allowing the wicked to perish. It's interesting here that he asked God to spare everyone, righteous and wicked alike. And so Abraham seems to recognize that among the wicked, there are those who may be redeemable. Now, no doubt some of these wicked are beyond redemption. They've hardened themselves to the point where it's impossible for them to repent. But there are probably those who have been caught up in this wickedness, but who may still have something left in them that would allow them to repent. Abraham may be thinking of Lot's family. Maybe some of Lot's family fits this category. You know, Lot and they were righteous at one time, but maybe, maybe they've slipped into wickedness, but are still redeemable. But Abraham definitely is asking God, don't just pull out the righteous, but spare the wicked as well. Now, we have to stop and think, why does Abraham begin bargaining at all? Why does he make this an issue of numbers? His argument was, it's not fair to, to slay 50 righteous along with the wicked. But does it really matter how many righteous there are? If it's not fair of God to condemn 50 righteous, is it fair of God to condemn five or even one? Now, has Abraham realized when he says this that he cannot accuse God of being unfair? This first outburst when he says, Far be it from you, will you not do right? Maybe this is just frustration. I get the idea that Abraham was speaking out of his heart here rather than any logical motive. And now he begins to kind of use his head, and he tries to begin to make a logical argument. What's interesting is 
God agrees. He doesn't say anything about whether Abraham is right or wrong. He just agrees to Abraham's condition. God says, I will spare the city for 50 righteous. And then Abraham begins to bargain here. What if the number of righteous is only 45? Will you destroy a city because of just a difference of five people? And God accepts these terms. God says, for 45, I won't destroy it. And Abraham pushes even further. What about 40, 30, 20? And every time, God agrees. Now, Abraham does not take this bargaining lightly. He realizes the seriousness of what he's doing. As a human, he describes himself as nothing but dust and ashes. It's a serious thing to be bargaining with God. Twice here, Abraham says, May the Lord not be angry. You know, a lot of times we may take coming into God's presence too lightly, and we need to understand the seriousness of it when we approach a holy God. We also need to understand we're talking about this in terms of bargaining, but this is not really a conventional bargain. Usually in a bargaining session, you have two sides approaching an issue from opposite ends, and they negotiate. One comes up, the other comes down. Eventually, they meet in the middle. But this dialogue between Abraham and God is not between two equals. Abraham is the inferior. He's not bargaining. He's asking God for favors, repeatedly asking God for favors. And God is granting his favor time after time. We get the idea here that God is plumbing Abraham's debts. What will you ask of me? Will you keep asking of me? Do you trust me enough? Are you comfortable with me enough? How badly does Abraham want to save Lot and the others? Abraham finally arrives at 10 and he stops. Let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And God agrees, for the sake of ten, the cities will not be destroyed. Then it says, the Lord is finished speaking, the Lord leaves, and Abraham returns home. We can see here that Abraham is the one who stops. Abraham ends the asking at ten. Think of what God told Abraham. Abraham asked of God, fifty, God says yes, forty-five, God says yes, forty, thirty, Every time, God gives him what he asked for. It's Abraham who stops, not God. Now, we have to ask, why? Why does Abraham stop at 10? He's been going down in increments of 10. Maybe he stops because the next step would be zero righteous, asking God to spare everyone regardless. Maybe Abraham feels this would be too much. It's interesting, though, that this is exactly what Moses asked of God later on. When the children of Israel disobey and God says, I'm going to blot them out, Moses steps in and he doesn't say, well, if there are enough righteous. He simply says, don't do this, and God agrees. Does Abraham stop because he thinks there needs to be a minimum core of righteous? In other words, if there's going to be any hope for the righteous to influence the wicked, there needs to be a certain amount of righteous. Does Abraham stop because he thinks 
He's gotten what he needs. You know, does he feel like surely between Lot and his family, there, there will be ten righteous people? There seems to be at least eight people in Lot's family. There's Lot, his wife, two unmarried daughters, seems to be two married daughters and two sons-in-law. That's not counting kids. So it would seem almost impossible that there wouldn't be at least ten righteous. Does Abraham stop too early? What would have happened if Abraham had continued on? Now, presumably, Abraham would have needed to go down to just one righteous person, to Lot, because we can see from later episodes that really Lot is the only person in Sodom who is truly righteous. Would God have spared Sodom for the sake of one righteous man? We'll never know because Abraham did not ask. It makes us stop and think. What other things have not taken place simply because we've never asked God for them? We've never asked God to intervene. Now, when we look at this, this section of Scripture, we ask, we ask ourselves, what have we learned? You know, what have we learned about what God is looking for in Abraham? Evidently, God is looking for someone who recognizes that he is connected to his fellow man. God wants Abraham to recognize that he has a responsibility for others. Contrast Abraham's response to Hezekiah's response. You know, later on in the history of, of Judah, the king of, Is, or the king of Judah, Hezekiah, is told that God is going to send judgment on Judah because of their sins. He's told that the Babylonians will attack. They will ransack Jerusalem. All of the people will be hauled away, including Hezekiah's family. But God tells him, this will not happen in your lifetime. Hezekiah's response is far different from Abraham. He doesn't beg God. He doesn't plead with God. Instead, 2 Kings 20, 19 tells us, For he thought, Will there not be peace and security within my lifetime? All too often, that is our attitude. Well, as long as things are going okay right now, as long as things are going okay for me, then I won't concern myself with what's going on in the lives of others. We also see from this episode that God is desiring someone who seeks His glory. When Abraham begins this process, when he tells God this is not like you, he begins with the idea that if God does this, it will reflect poorly on God. If God punishes the righteous with the wicked, it will make God look bad. It will impugn God's glory. Abraham says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And so Abraham is saying, look, if you do this, it's going to look bad on you. It's going to hold you up in a bad light. So Abraham begins not really with Lot, but Abraham begins with God's glory himself. We need to begin with God's glory. When God is put in his rightful place, when God is given the glory due to him, everything else then assumes its correct position. We then are put into a position of ultimate completion and joy. Now, 
We also learn here what Abraham finds out about God. Abraham learns that God is a personal God, a God who reveals himself, a God who lets us in on his thoughts and plans. Abraham learns that God is a God who allows us to be open and honest with him, a God who encourages us to respond, who welcomes our anger, our frustration, our fears, a God whom we can approach with confidence. Abraham learns that God is a God who responds to our request. Even though God is in the ultimate position of power, God is the one holding all of the cards. God, however, responds. God grants our pleas and our request. He learns that God is a God who allows us to work with Him, to allow, who allows us to be in partnership with Him. So, we can see from all of this that, that this is a, a unique uh, time period within the relationship of God and Abraham that goes a long way in strengthening this relationship. But I want to close with this idea. Ben Patterson writes, Abraham's wrestling with God takes him to the place where he discovers God to be better than he ever imagined. And then Morgan writes, God is not only better than our fears, He's better than our hopes, better than the very best we had dared to suppose. We stop at ten. God takes care of the one. As Abraham's mathematics decreased from fifty to ten, his faith increased inversely. In this section, Abraham stops at ten because he can't imagine going any farther. But in fact, this actually is not far enough. If God held Abraham to the agreement that they struck, Lot and his family would have been destroyed. But God doesn't let even one righteous person perish. God sends angels to pluck out Lot, to save Lot, and along with Lot, to bring out his wife, his two daughters, who clearly do not deserve to be, to be rescued. God is more merciful than we can ever imagine. Ben Patterson writes, God's grace always exceeds our expectations. Abraham felt that ten would be surely enough to save Lot. It wasn't, but they were saved anyway. Abraham's hopes exceeded his reality, and ordinarily this would have been a tragedy, but because of God's mercy, it was redeemed. That's what I want us to take away from this lesson. We need to discover a God who's better than we can ever imagine. A God who exceeds our expectations. A God who is far more merciful than we can ever imagine. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture that we read today. We thank you for the mercy that we see in you as, you as you allow Abraham to bargain here with you. And as eventually, even though Abraham stops short, you continue on to extend your mercy to Lot. And you've extended your mercy to each one of us. We give you praise for that. We thank you in your name. Amen.